Hey, Corey. Hi, Justin. How's it going? Good, good. It's uh, good to speak with you. It's funny. <laughs> it's been a minute since, you know, my Congress days, at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of things have changed for you, right? A you're you're a, yeah, you're a mother now? I am. My son just turned one. That's hard to believe. Yeah. So what's that like? Oh, you know, it's it's definitely life-changing, but in a good way. He's um kind of like a male clone of me, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he'll get into politics? I hope he doesn't. I hope he sees like both his mom and dad and is like, no, thank you. <laughs> it's going to be like, uh, and what will the Liberty Movement be at that point? It's like Gen 7 or something? I, I don't even know. It'll be the Liberty Movement. It's final form, which sounds somewhat scary. <laughs> <laughs> so um you're living out uh in a more suburban area right you've oh, moved out of like i i live in western loudon county on 10 acres now i'm like oh so it's rural mm -hmm. and have you ever lived sort of out in the country like that before no <laughs> no, no. I grew up in the suburbs. And um, yeah, this is I, I live a little bit over an hour outside of DC. Um, so this is the furthest I've lived from a city before, but I, I love it. I think it's wonderful out here. And do you drive into work or do you work from home now? Oh, now I'm working from home at R Street for the most part. R Street does have DC offices, um, and I was actually there yesterday, and I'll, I'll come in for events and whatnot, but I am working from home, so that's a big benefit. Yeah, and do you do, like, rural things? Are you, like, milking cows and, and like, getting eggs from the chickens and stuff? Not yet, but we also moved in in November, so we'll see what spring brings. Um, but the previous owners had, like, donkeys and... <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to have donkeys. My husband and I joke that we might have alpacas, but we're going to take it one step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so I've known you for a long time. Um, my sense is you're more religious these days. Is that correct? Am I right that you're more religious or is it that it just didn't come up as much when we were interacting? Okay. So for background, I'm Jewish on my mother's side. I wasn't raised Jewish, but I do think as I get older, I'm just more interested in connecting with that. It doesn't so much mean that I'm religious, but like a lot of American Jews, it's it's almost more of like sort of a, a cultural and traditional thing that I'm trying to get mm -hmm. more to with. But um, yeah, I would say it probably wasn't as much of a priority. Um, but I also wouldn't say that I'm super religious. I'm still sort of on the agnostic side, which again, is not uncommon for certain American Jews, especially those of us who weren't raised religious. But um, we'll see. I think part of it has to do with having a kid. I'd like to sort of educate him in that way. Um, I wasn't. So um, I definitely want to give him more access to Jewish traditions, um, you know, including hopefully he'll consent to me sending him to Hebrew school. I know that that's going to be difficult. <laughs> but is, um, is there Hebrew school out in the rural area where you live? Yeah, well, I'm I'm like 20 minutes from Leesburg. There um, are two synagogues there, um, and so yeah, there there's access to it. I mean, I'm I'm only an hour from DC. It's not like I moved to like Montana, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, but once you get outside the you know the major metro area, there it it does start to feel a little bit like Montana. 
Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> you know, Leesburg, Virginia, for those familiar with the D.C. area, is a pretty major suburb slash sort of small city. And that really isn't that far from me. Yeah. So do you go to Temple now? Are you, are, are you again, not particularly religious, but more culturally Jewish? So I intend to, but it's something I have not done yet. So we'll see. Part of it is like pandemic things. Um, I think some of the synagogues are still getting back to normal. Um, but we'll see. It's something I intend to do. But no, it's not something I've really actually like dove into yet. It's been more of an intellectual journey. And then I'll, um, I intend to you know, get more involved, especially as Max gets older. Yeah. And you want to raise him that way as, as a, a growing up Jewish, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't want him to necessarily feel that he has to take it literally or anything like that, but I at least want him to be involved in the traditions. Yeah. And your husband is not Jewish, is that correct? Or is he Jewish? My husband is not, although a lot of people think he is because his last name is Stein. Um, so even growing up, <laughs> yeah. people thought, like his name is Kenneth Stein. People thought he was Jewish, like he was always getting invited to like bar mitzvahs and whatnot, but he's, he's not. Um, although, you know, legally my last name is Stein now. So he like gave me a Jewish sounding last yeah, name. Yeah, I think I it's funny. Not, you don't have a Jewish husband, but he gave you an, a last name that is more typically a, a Jewish last name in the United States. So yeah, that's his <laughs> name sounds very Jewish, even though like, you know, he's Jewish because naturally like he's Jewish. Um, but yeah, by background, he's only really like a quarter Jewish, but he has a Jewish sounding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've seen you talk a lot about kids and COVID and how you feel COVID has been abused to really hurt students. And um, and I'm sure this is something you think about a lot as someone with a young child. And and so could you talk a little more about that? Like what what is it about what the government's doing that has really upset you? Because I see that you tweet about this maybe more than most other topics. <laughs> I know. I've gotten so fixated on this. And I, I think it does have to do with being a parent. Um, you know, so I got pregnant in July of 2020. So like fairly early on in the pandemic. And very early on in the pandemic, I um, was more supportive than I would say most libertarians of some restrictions. I thought that, you know, there could be a public health argument, especially in the absence of um, available vaccines, that, you know, there might be some justification for restricting certain people's activity to protect, you know, the truly vulnerable. So, you know, I was actually getting into fights with libertarians. Like, I didn't think, you know, mask mandates were necessarily like the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, I, I was willing to say that in a public health crisis, the government may have some role. Um, where I started to, I think where some of my anger came from was I was surprised by the extent to which the availability of vaccines did not change public policy. Um, I really, really thought that, you know, masking, for example, was an emergency mitigation measure. I was very surprised that things did not change, especially in certain um, areas, including where I live in the D.C. area. And I was living in Arlington, Virginia at that time, so closer to the D.C. area than I live now. Um so I would say my attitude changed. Max was actually born like the week of the vaccine rollout. I remember I was giving birth and all the doctors in the hospital had their little, I got my COVID vaccine shot um, sticker. And so I was sort of thinking, okay, vaccines are here. Max is born. Things are going to be more normal now. 
And I think I've been so passionate about this because Max is now a year old and we are seeing so much, I would say, active disinformation about the way kids are affected by COVID. You know, I see my peers with young children terrorized thinking that COVID is like going to like kill their child. And the data just does not bear that out. I follow this very, very closely because I have a young child. And I've just been really disappointed with um, the way the media has covered this. Um, you may have seen some of my critiques about um, I remember there was a CNN article a couple of months ago that suggested that, you know, children are being hospitalized at huge rates for Omicron. And then you dig further into the article and they explain that there's co-infections. They explain that sometimes this is in- incidental testing positive for being admitted for other things. So I just think there's a lot of misinformation, especially around kids. And I do think being a mother has made me like focus on this to the point where I might actually be making myself insane. <laughs> but <laughs> That's sort of the, the gist of it. And I do think having a child is why I'm I'm feeling this way. Yeah, I've, I've thought this is the most frustrating part about all of COVID. It's that kids are being treated in a certain way that doesn't match up with any of the facts or statistics or data we have, where we're pretending like if kids who are five years old or even younger aren't getting vaccinated that somehow this is extremely dangerous to the average kid or a typical kid. And it's just not. Um, and there's no all in the discussion because I'm extremely pro vaccine. Um, and I think it's important, especially for vulnerable and elderly, elderly people to get vaccinated, but it's like, no one can talk about risk stratification or have any without everyone just going insane. It's like, Either you're a COVID denier or, you know, everything is, you know, terrible. It's just there's no nuance whatsoever. So that drives me insane. But that's also sort of a typical libertarian thing where, like, if you insert nuance into it, you're somehow a bad person. Like, we've run into this <laughs> libertarian community. For, for, and this is what we dealt with, you know, with, like, all of your votes that people got mad about. It's yeah, it's the same principle. Yeah, it's not even liber- it's not even just libertarians. I mean, it's it's everyone. There is no nuance for some reason. For example, I'm vaccinated. I've 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 fully vaccinated. I've had the booster. Um but I can still have opinions about kids and their vaccinations or masking and I can think through things like a human being. It's weird that we're we all have access to this data. We can see it with our own eyes. We can figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense and yet people will tell you that like not to believe your own brain like yeah. <laughs> there's like we can see that of course old people are very vulnerable and people who are who are very sick in other ways are very vulnerable but also that most kids who are healthy are just fine and if they get covid they'll get a runny nose or something and then they'll be fine in a few days like it's not you know nothing's going to happen to them with the typical person. So it's just disheartening to find that people can't think in nuance and can't figure out that there's a difference between people depending on age and depending on all sorts of conditions. Yeah, I think that's why it makes me so mad. And it bothers me too, because I see a lot of my like, you know, quote unquote, normie friends just consuming like regular media and listening to the experts. 
And I see people who are, you know, very smart, but just don't follow these things completely because they're not in public policy the way I am. They're scared. And I think that makes me mad, too, is seeing my peers and you know parents of young children being terrified. And this just goes, you know, into a broader problem with a lot of modern media, too, with the, the reporting on this. Um, just like the lack of intellectual curiosity. I mean, if you've been following my tweets, I've said on multiple times, literal randos on Twitter are doing a better job at, you know, critiquing the CDC and looking at why their data is wrong. Like their, their data track for anyone who's followed that they had to recently correct. They, they overstated pediatric COVID hospitalizations and they had to correct mm-hmm. it. And it wasn't because any journalists questioned the experts. It was literally people on Twitter discovering this. And then the CDC had to say something because it's so obvious. So there is definitely a lack of um, rigor and a, a deference to, you know, experts without even considering that potentially we should be, you know, maybe analyzing this data with our own brain, as you said. So <laughs> it's, it's very frustrating. And I think part of it, too, is, you know, being in the libertarian space, I'm skeptical of bureaucracies to begin with. Um I think a lot of people, you know, who aren't in this industry just say, oh, the experts say, and they have no idea that the CDC is kind of like a really problematic bureaucracy in a lot of ways. So there are a lot of layers and elements to this that frustrate me in in different ways. Yeah, and I think it's becoming a a mental health crisis in many ways, too, where people are starting to freak out in ways that are not rational because they keep seeing on TV or in the newspaper that they're supposed to freak out about something. Like I literally see um, CNN pundits who at one point were, you know, more pro mask or more pro vaccine for everyone, et cetera. Now they say, Oh, maybe we don't need masks in every situation. Then they get attacked by their own followers on Twitter. Like, like they've, it's almost like they've unleashed a monster. Now they've created this this beast that's coming for them. They have, but also as you know too, um, the, the most extreme people tend to be on Twitter. So yeah, of course, um, I, I don't know how much that reflects the real world because I don't know how it is in Michigan or how it's been throughout the pandemic. Um, but even in DC, I mean, I was in DC yesterday, and things are much more back to normal in the city. So I do think a lot of people are. Um, are getting, you know, to a point where they're getting okay. I think like the shut-in people who are really scared are on Twitter. But I I am worried about a mental health crisis, especially with young people. I mean, I see the way that colleges and high schools even are still treating fully vaccinated students. It's very concerning that I think um, in places where children and young adults are supposed to be educated, there's sort of the most enumerate hysteria going on. Um, Yeah. (laughs) because <laughs> like that's the place where they should be the most rational and they're actually the least <laughs> yeah i see that too and it and it is scary and um and you know you'd you'd hope that if anyone it would be colleges and universities that would think rationally and look at all sides of a discussion and look at all the data and um you know try to act in a way that makes sense based on actual information but that doesn't seem to be the case in a lot of places no. So, so you are interesting in many ways, but I would say one of the things that's interesting about you is that you're still very young, but you are a Gen 1 Liberty person, right? Like, like I remember you from back in the really old days, and I don't know 
I don't know how old you were when you started in the liberty movement or anything. And and when I say liberty movement, I mean sort of that group of libertarian or libertarian-leaning people who started to coalesce around the time that Ron Paul was really getting active in national politics. And I, because I can remember you at conferences and various things a long time ago. What, you know, it is really actually a long time ago now. <laughs> I met you when you were 29, actually, because I, for this, and now I'm 35. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I did get started in that space in 2007. I was uh, 20 at the time, I had just turned 20. And I mean, I will admit, I've actually changed a lot since then. Um, and I know you've gone on some similar journeys. Like we, we've some some had you know parallels to some degree. Um, I would say, you know, I'm I'm very thankful for Ron for getting me interested because it changed the trajectory of my life. I think if I hadn't been you know volunteering on his campaign in 2007, I don't think I would have the career that I do. These days, though, I'm definitely um, not so much aligned with him. I don't think I. I feel very disconnected from sort of like that more right wing libertarian movement, which I feel like he sort of um, comes from to some degree. And at least the people surrounding him, I, I definitely don't feel very connected to that anymore. But I mean, undoubtedly, I definitely used to be a right wing libertarian. I'm sort of much more of a, a centrist libertarian now. I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with this, Justin, but I've, I've always thought that the libertarian movement sort of has its own right left spectrum. Um mm-hmm. And I find myself very much a centrist libertarian. Um, and I, I don't know, like it's different from centrist in like a general sense, but I, I think centrist libertarian um, is definitely where I'm at these days. And part of it is from being, you know, in the conservative trenches. I was in the Tea Party movement. You know, I've, I've seen the populist conservative movement and I, I have a lot of problems with it. <laughs> um, I have a lot of problems with Trump and all of that, as, as you well know. Um, but it's definitely been an interesting journey. And yeah, I guess you could call me OG Liberty in the sense that like, if you go back to 2007 and 2008 with Ron Paul, I was definitely like gung ho, rah, rah back then for sure. Yeah. And there are people today who don't really know that much about Ron Paul other than that he existed. Like they don't really, you know what I mean? There are people joining the Liberty movement or the Libertarian Party or Libertarian Republican circles who are like, yeah, I'm all about Ron Paul, but they don't really know much about Ron Paul because actually he was much before their time, and that's not really why they got involved. They got involved for other reasons. And it is unfortunate in some ways that they didn't really get to know what he was about because I think that he himself is not really representative of a lot of what's grown around him. Um, A lot of, I think, what you talk about, sort of the right-wing, more nationalist sort of libertarianism, I I think is a thing that has developed um, on its own separately. It was part of the same camp, part of the same movement at the time, but it really has taken hold in a way that I don't think Ron himself at the time, at least, um, would have subscribed to. And – and, you know, I, I don't know who's to blame for that or, or what, but I agree with you that libertarianism is not really right or left, but it has within it sort of the same right-left spectrum. 
you see that within libertarianism, and I certainly see that within the Libertarian Party. Oh yeah, I, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, it's it's within libertarianism, but it's definitely its own spectrum. And yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to name names or call anyone out, but I definitely think some of the people that Ron has always surrounded himself with are a lot more right wing, um, and sort of always have been, you know, for better or worse. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely just see myself in a bit of a, a different direction. Um, but of course, I'm I'm always grateful for him, and the times I've met him, he's been gracious and very nice. Um, I know you spend more time with him; he endorsed you. Um, so you you know more about him on a personal yeah level. yeah I've always uh, appreciated him and um, admired what he did his efforts to spread liberty and bring some new ideas into politics and his independence was always something that inspired me so yeah I I owe him a lot in terms of getting my start and um, having him as a figure that I could look up to at the time for something I've, you know, I wanted to echo in many ways, you know, go out there and be an independent minded person who would not just say whatever the establishment is saying or what the mainstream mainstream accepted narrative is, but would just go speak the truth. And while I don't always agree with him and haven't always agreed with him on everything, um, I certainly admire and appreciate someone who will go out and, and do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely true. Um, And I I think that's the main reason a lot of people, you know, really like and liked him. And I I think, you know, even uh, that's largely why I was drawn to him as a young person as well. But I also think, too, what what I believed at the time, um, and I think what you believed at the time and probably no longer do as well, was that the Republican Party could become more libertarian. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think a lot about that. And I think, too, about like, the people that I thought were like Liberty Republicans, I don't really believe that's a thing. Um, I feel like you in some ways were sort of the only one. I I can't, I can't think of anyone I would describe as like an actually libertarian Republican these days. Even people that I think started out with more libertarian leanings, like say a Ted Cruz or Mike Lee, it's hard to discern these days that they have really even a libertarian streak anymore. And I don't mean that to insult them. It's just, it just is what it is. Um, I don't look to anyone in the libertarian or sorry, the Republican party and think like, Oh, this is good for the future of Liberty. Like I just, I just don't these days. Yeah. I would say as someone who kept a scorecard on my peers, as you know. So I had a scorecard as the chairman of the House Liberty Caucus. I would say that from a voting record standpoint, Thomas Massey holds up. And uh, he's a friend of mine, um, someone I, I've served with for many years. And of all the people who served with me, he's the one I can say held up really well in terms of sticking to his principles. Now, this doesn't mean I agree with him on every issue or I uh, will message in the same way. And I think in many ways, he's certainly more conservative than I am in a, in a certain sense of that word, at least. Uh, maybe like more paleo or, or whatever people might describe um, as a term. But what I would say is he held up as a libertarian Republican. But yeah, I think as a general matter, the idea of Liberty Republicans or Libertarian Republicans is pretty dead. Like there's not really any movement there. When I first got into politics um, in 2009 when I was in the State House, and then 2011 when I got into Congress, there was this sense of excitement that oh. 
there was a movement. There was this liberty movement, and I thought to myself the the Republican Party might be able to move in a more libertarian direction. And even a lot of the Tea Party had very libertarian elements to it, which is different from the way things are today, where the Tea Party basically died. I think the Tea Party basically died because libertarianism died within the Republican Party. And it took the Tea Party down with it and it was replaced with this sort of nationalist, populist um, Trump culture. And that's a very different thing from libertarianism and the Tea Party of old. It is, but I actually think we may have a disagreement about what happened because to me... Yeah, I wanted to ask you what happened. Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm interested in knowing. What do you think happened? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that I'm even convinced of my own theory, but... I'm not really sure that like the tea party died or that it was taken over because I really think the same people just shifted to what was popular. Um, and I, I think this is almost a critique of populism. I think libertarianism aligned with populism in that moment that you were talking about when we were all excited. And it led me to believe that the Republican party was going to become more libertarian. I, at the time really believed that was an inevitability. I thought there was going to be a generational change. I thought that younger Republicans would be more libertarian. You look at them now, like a lot of younger Republicans are like MAGA hat, like kind of almost trolls, like not all of them, but there's definitely a contingent of younger who are like that. So I actually think that the problem might be, you know, the populism is sort of playing with fire. Like you can, you know, get people to maybe be more libertarian at a certain time, especially when you can coalesce against a sitting Democratic president. So we could all agree we didn't agree with it, you know, a number of things Obama was doing. But then that those populist fires shifted, especially when someone like Trump sort of like gave people a reason to feel excited. I used to think that the Tea Party, um, the people cared more about policy, but I saw so many Tea Party people I knew individually who went from caring about free markets, being against bailouts to just like being Trump cheerleaders. It was the same people. So I have. A right. And so so they oppose free markets and they're for bailouts. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Like taken over. I think populism inherently can shift from thing to thing. And it's not really like connected to anything ideologically. So I don't believe the Tea Party was replaced. I just think populism is sort of like something that can shift with the winds. And um, I mean, because, you know, like there were tons of people in, you know, even your district, Tea Party people who supported you and then turned against you. They were the same people. So that's kind of my take on it. And I know that's sort of like vague to some degree, but the people did change. It's not that they were just replaced. I think there were stages to this. So while I agree with you that Ultimately, a lot of those Tea Party people did shift over to Trump world. I don't think it all happened at once. And a lot of them were very hesitant, very reluctant, and even hostile toward Trump early on. I remember this in 2016, seeing a lot of Tea Party people in my district who were hostile toward Trump, who were concerned about what he was saying, while some others went along with him and said, yeah, this guy's great. There were many others who were like, hey, this is unnerving because he's actually pushing against the things we believe in. He's not he's not a limited government, economic freedom, individual liberty sort of conservative. This guy is a, a nationalist, a populist, a guy who will use government um, to his own advantage. So there was a lot of pushback and a lot of concern. And I think for a brief period of time between, say, 2016 and tw sometime in 2018, at least, I saw this where people were thinking, maybe we can push back against it. Maybe it won't 
totally take over the Republican Party or the Liberty Movement or the Tea Party or whatever. But ultimately, they all failed. And I, I saw this as well within the House Freedom Caucus. Well, where, that's yeah. what I worked in 2016 to 2018. I mean, we saw that happen before our eyes, which is why, like, I do agree it happened in stages, but it, it happened, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the House Freedom Caucus, there there was a period of time where the same people who now will totally shill for Trump and say anything to anyone that makes Trump look good, even when they know they're flat out lying. Those same people were blasting Trump behind the scenes. They'd go to Freedom Caucus meetings and say this guy is a a joke and a fraud and this guy's been bankrupt so many times and he's so corrupt and crooked. And we heard it with our own ears at the meetings. And yet these same people will then go on TV now and they'll say how great he is and he's the greatest thing that ever happened. But Justin, don't you think those people sort of like trolled themselves into becoming actual Trump supporters? This is the way I yes. <laughs> into it because people I know in real life did that too. Like people I knew from the Ron Paul movement who are now more like nationalist types who, you know, are even for like Marjorie Taylor Greene and like crazy people like that. Like they trolled themselves into believing that Trump was good. And what I mean by that is I remember because I started working for you in August of 2016. So I remember even I went to a communications meeting of the Freedom Caucus staffers, like the comm staffers, like probably the week Trump was elected and everyone was horrified. Everyone was like, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this work? And then those same people, like over time, became truly enthusiastic Trump supporters. They started to convince themselves, well, we have access to power now. I think that was the key. Like. People started being like, oh, this is kind of bad, but also we have access to power. We can influence him. But you remember this. Instead of influencing Trump, they ended up being influenced by Trump. Right. And I I think there's something about access to power that, like, warps people's brains because we saw it happen in real time. Like, these people, like, you can't go back and say now, like, I'm just going to name him. Like, Jim Jordan, he's an actual Trump supporter now. Like, no matter what he said before, he's an actual Trump supporter now. Like, and I think he really, like, over time, just he and others, they, they believe it now. And that's that's their personality. Like, it's not fake. It's real now. And I don't know how that changes. Yeah, absolutely. And I used to tell people this because people would say, are these people bad-mouthing him behind the scenes but then going on TV and saying he's great and all that? Yeah, they did do that for a while. But then eventually they just started to believe it themselves. They started <laughs> to believe the things that they were saying. They were play acting as Trump supporters because the base wanted that, right? They were like, well, my base likes Trump, so I'm going to go on TV and I'm going to do this performance as a Trump supporter. And then I'm going to go back and gripe about how bad Trump is and and what a jerk and what an idiot. But eventually they just got sucked into it. It's like they played it enough times where the same people who would come back to me and say how awful he is. And by the way, they used to say much worse things about him than I ever said. Like, and, and I don't, and I don't mean this in like that I'm some kind of fan of Donald Trump because people know my opinion of him, but I guess I'm just kind of a reserved person in many ways. Like I don't, it's not my nature to go and hate on people in the way that some of my colleagues do. So they used to say the most outrageous things about him and then on tv they'd say how great he is and then eventually it's like they just bought into their own shtick but 
that's what I mean by they trolled themselves into becoming Trump supporters. I use that language very like specifically because they did. They trolled themselves. And I saw this happen in the conservative movement broadly, too. Like, I remember the skepticism you're talking about. For example, a lot of it came from Ted Cruz supporters. Um, mm-hmm. And I know a lot. I initially was a big Ted Cruz supporter when I lived in Houston. He ran for Senate in 2012. That was back during the optimistic days when it was like, hey, Republicans are going to be libertarian leaning. And Ted at that time talked a big game. He was like more pro-immigration, pro-trade. He even said he was libertarian leaning at his campaign events. Um, Looking back, I think he said that because that's what people wanted to hear. But, um, you know, I remember the Cruz supporters in 2016 and even Ted himself, if you remember, he went to the RNC and made this like principled speech against Trump. But Ted is a good actual example of this trajectory. And I don't mean this to insult him or anything, but like this is this was the acclamation. You started to see Ted and conservatives who supported him saying, well, Trump can't really be that bad. Right. We can get some things done. And then like by uh, 2020, all of these people who were skeptical were either enthusiastic Trump supporters or at the very least they voted for him. I mean, I know plenty of people who didn't vote for Trump in 2016 who were like more principled conservatives who voted for him in 2020. I know a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just the acclamation. Um, like not everyone trolled themselves into it, but after people did troll themselves into it, other conservatives and even some libertarians just were acclimated. This is the conservative movement now. He's still better than Biden. Like there was so much of that. Yeah, I, I did get a lot of that from my colleagues where they would say to me, look, I don't like him, but if I'm within that circle, if I can get invited to the White House, then I'm able to do things. But you said this earlier, and you're spot on, and I've said this before as well. They thought they could go and influence Trump and change him. They thought they could go and pitch a policy idea to him and say like, hey, Mr. President, here's a good idea or here's how you should frame this or here's what you should be promoting. And instead of that happening, instead of their selling Trump on something, he sold them on stuff. They would actually – they would actually come back to, to me and they'd say, oh, I have changed my mind or like now I agree with Trump. And it would be some policy position that is totally against conservatism or libertarianism. And they would try to sell it with a straight face. But this is, I mean, in some ways a credit to Donald Trump. And yeah. I, I've said this before that people can make fun of him all they want. They can criticize him all they want. I always thought he was a masterful campaigner. And he is able to charm people. If you put him in a room with people, he wins them over. And I don't know what the exact ingredient is or what what's the formula for him to do that. But you put him in a room with my colleagues. I saw it time and again. They were charmed by him, moved by him, and they'd come back saying, you know, I, I see his point. I'm going to do it this way, even if it's totally contrary to beliefs they held their whole life. Yeah, well, this is why I, I, I said what I said, because I remember this specifically from when I worked with you. I don't remember the exact issue, but the first time the Freedom Caucus guys went to the White House, do you remember what I'm talking about? There was something where, like, you guys all, like, went to the White House. You went, too, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Whatever that first time was, I remember they were all like, we're going to tell him to do whatever it was. It was something about spending, or was it was it the ACA? There, there. There are multiple things it could have been. It could have been the um it could have been the healthcare law. I think it was the healthcare law. That's why and I said ACA. Yeah. Sorry, that's what I meant. But I remember you guys went and like there was some your colleagues were like transformed. 
And I don't, I've never met Trump, so I don't, I don't know, but I think that that's the right read on him. For some reason, he can charm people, which seems weird, like, when you look at it from the outside, because he's, like, sort of buffoonish. But he obviously has some kind of charisma where people sort of feel the need to defer to him, which I find weird, but, like, it's clearly true. There's, like, ample evidence of this. (laughs) I think it's a confidence he has when he's talking, and he'll put us in a room at the White House, and it would be, you know, maybe eight... 10, 12 of us, depending on the situation. And we'd be there for an hour and he would speak for 55 minutes out of the hour. <laughs> you know, would it, like you'd be like, we're, we're here to tell Donald Trump something and to get him to change his mind on whatever. But instead it would be 55 minutes of his speaking. And then someone would chime in like Mark Meadows or someone would, well, Mr. President, we just wanted to suggest this thing. And then Trump would sort of poo-poo it and move on and tell some other story. And then we'd leave. And then they're like, well, you know, now they just, they didn't pursue it any further. That was it. Like, you know, we're and just going to go with Trump now. I know. And then too, I think, I think one, one way Trump was very effective, because I remember seeing this happen too. Like it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. It definitely happened in phases. But another thing, I, th- that's why I mentioned access to power. And like you mentioned, Mark Meadows, it's so funny that in the end, Mark Meadows became his chief of staff. <laughs> you know how it happened, you know, from 2016 onwards. But like Trump then started calling Mark and like Mark, you know, I think he felt that you know, he had that access. He had that. Mm-hmm. Access. And I think that also warps people's brains in a way. Like when you have the president calling you and you're a congressman, I think that that affects you on like an emotional level. 100 so percent. Yep. Like because I yeah. saw that. You see their attitudes which change. Well, the president called me, you know, like you can start <laughs> seeing them be like, broken down and they didn't care so much about their policy anymore. They started caring more about access to the president. And you saw this like transition. Um, and by the time I left in 2018, your office, that is, it was like fully done. Like they were they were like all in for Trump, I think. At least it seemed that way to me. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, actually. It's a reason not to make friends with someone in another branch of government that you are you are actually supposed to be working to check each other and to balance each other in different ways so you have your powers they have their powers and it can become very dangerous if members of congress become too friendly with the president or with top level administration officials i used to think about this all the time i tried to keep as much a distance as possible from personal relationships with people in the executive branch for that reason, because it does cloud your judgment. If someone is your friend, it is hard to oppose that friend. It's hard to criticize that friend. It's very hard to do. A lot of people, a lot of people are actually against criticizing their friends for moral reasons. Even, you know, I spoke to Michael Malice on an earlier podcast, who's very adamant that you don't criticize friends publicly. So this is a a principle that a lot of people believe in. And if you have that principle, then I think you also have to be careful about who you make friends with. And yeah. what ended up happening was a lot of these Freedom Caucus members and others in Congress, they started to get very cozy with the president. He'd call them up and boy, do they feel special, right? The president's calling them. He's calling my cell phone. They they get up from the meeting. They're like, I've got to answer this phone call. It's the president. Exactly. And then they, you know, they talk and sometimes they'd put it on speakerphone for a second, just so everyone could hear, oh, like he, I'm talking to the president. Look at how special I am. And 
it is very hard then after you had that conversation with the president to criticize the president for anything, to say the president is wrong about something, to push back against the president on on anything. It becomes a very dangerous trap for people. And so it is something I thought about a lot, and it's something that I would advise people who are in government that they should be careful about developing close relationships with people who they have to check. In other words, people they have to work in an adversarial way um, pretty consistently. And and (laughs) that's certainly true between legislators and the executive branch. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I, you know, it's funny because I think that gets at the root actually of um, what maybe some of the founders, I think specifically Madison might've been a little bit wrong about where they thought that Congress would want to guard its um, powers more because if, I mean, and we could talk about this forever, but if you, you know, drill down to it, Congress, you know, not existing as Congress should is probably as you talk about all the time, one of the biggest problems our country has. Um, and, but I do, I think on a personal level, I, I think that has so much to do with it. And of course, partisanship has to do with it too. I mean, as you well know, people see themselves more as in a party and I want to help the president when, you know, it's their party in power. So I think that has a lot to do with it too. Um, you know, when you first were elected to Congress, it was under a democratic president. And so I think, um, it's not even just Trump. I think it would have been any Republican president that your colleagues probably would have felt compelled to act this way. I think Trump is just an extreme example because his policy ideas are so bad and his personality is like so unconventional. Um, But I I think to some degree, this probably would have happened with any Republican president um, just because of the way partisanship works. But I'm curious, Justin, did you think about this after you saw what happened to your colleagues or did you go into Congress thinking I need to keep a distance from the executive branch? I'm not sure I explicitly made that connection at first. Like when I got into politics, I don't think that my mindset was be wary of these relationships with the executive branch. But as I watched members of Congress over the years, and it wasn't just with this president, of course, there were Democrats with with President Obama as well. As I watched some of these relationships and saw how difficult it was for people to criticize someone they thought of as a friend, you can see why it's problematic because it creates a conflict of interest. Your your job as a representative or as a senator is to re- represent the people at home, to uphold the Constitution and represent the people who elected you. And that can't be allowed to come into conflict with your friendship with the executive branch. You have to avoid that friendship with the executive branch officials and especially the president because it's going to create that conflict that uh, prevents you from representing people and doing your duty. So I, I started to see it as I went along in Congress. I'm not sure that it started with Trump, but I definitely did not go into public office thinking about that so much. And what changed my mind or at least made it uh, aware in my mind was seeing what was going on with my colleagues and how difficult it was to to um, check the other branch. Oh, yeah. No, it's and again, I do think this has a lot to do with just partisanship and human nature generally. I mean, you still face this today. I see all the time you're tweeting and these people are like, why didn't you say anything when (laughs) against this Republican or like silly stuff like that. But I think that's because that's how most people's brains work. Like they, and again, so many people like will complain to you about like Mitch McConnell. They're like, well, the problem isn't really the Democrats. It's Mitch McConnell. It's like people, they just cannot think in a way that isn't partisan. 
And for me, that makes it, I'm not super optimistic that like Congress can really change if people are partisan. I feel pretty pessimistic about that. And I, I, it seems more like a psychological problem than even a logistical one, uh, which is like getting like real deep about it. But I, I really think partisanship is, is at the root of this. It's just human nature. I think partisanship is actually like a part of human nature, that tribalism. It, it's normal. And I don't, I don't know how you break through that really. Right. Just so you know, I've, I've been getting messages that sometimes when we talk over each other, our connection must not be perfect. So we get a little bit of static. Okay. But that's okay. Uh, we'll just try to – I'll try to avoid it. I think it's mostly when I say something interjecting while you're speaking. But that's we'll, – we'll try to figure it out. For some reason, the connection's not good enough. It can't handle both of our voices at once or something. But maybe it's because you live out in the, the country there. It could be. <laughs> yeah. That could be the issue. <laughs> it doesn't seem to affect our audio too much when we're having long um, sort of monologues, but when we are going back and forth, sometimes it, it creates a problem. I'm just letting you know that so that you're aware of it. Um, and I'll do my I'll do my best. I, I don't know if I can avoid interjecting throughout the whole thing, but I'll do my best. So what was it like working on the Hill? And how was that different from your expectations? Well, I think um, because of the time I came in, so many of my expectations were upended just about what I believed the Republican Party could be. Um, because I started working for you in August of 2016, I didn't think it was possible that Donald Trump could possibly win. I feel like you thought he could. I remember this. I remember when I started, you thought there was actually a pretty good chance that Trump would become president. And I feel like I and most of the staff at the time were like, no way. I mean, I could be remembering it incorrectly. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> so, like, I, I remember thinking that. And so... If Donald Trump hadn't won, if Hillary had won, I don't think any of these things would have happened to your colleagues, like with their brains being warped, like what we discussed earlier, because that partisanship line would have been what it had been, you know, since you had started in Congress. So I might have, you know, continued to believe the Republican Party could become more libertarian if Hillary had won. But because of what happened with Trump, um, I think it made my experience on the Hill a lot different than what we were even initially discussing when you hired me, because... Um, you, you know, when you hired me, you wanted to do all kinds of media. You, but then when Trump was elected, I remember this problem. The media started seeing you as an anti-Trump Republican. And you didn't really want to be that. That wasn't really the brand that you wanted out there. And so it really created a problem, I think, for us in terms of how do we get your voice out there? Because the media became obsessed with you because they wanted any Republican that opposed Trump. But they misunderstood why you were opposing Trump. I think it wasn't about Trump, per se, like I used to say, it's not that Justin is never Trump, it's that Justin is always liberty. And I don't know how many people actually <laughs> did what I do. Yeah, no, that's a, that's absolutely right. I've never embraced the never Trump label. I've never liked that label. I've never called myself anti-Trump in that sense. Um, I just didn't vote for Donald Trump and I didn't agree with his policies. And if you look back on Twitter, my critiques are libertarian critiques of Donald Trump. They are the same critiques I made up against President Obama and that I'm making against President Biden. They're, they haven't changed. So it was easy for the media who aren't thinking in a principled way. They're just you know, trying to sell newspapers or sell, sell TV advertising or whatever. 
they're just looking for a Republican who's going to criticize other Republicans. And they wanted to put me out there as that guy, as though I'm the same thing as like Adam Kinzinger today or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, like we're in the same camp somehow, according to the media, when we're totally different. Yeah, Justin and Liz Cheney are the same person. <laughs> but that was unfortunately, and this is this is a broader problem with sort of the media generally. And I don't, I mean, I'm I'm in media relations. Like I'm not going to say, oh, the media is all terrible. Like I think there's a lot of people in media who are trying to do a good job, but the incentives are such that it can be hard to really like look into the nuances of things. And this was the thing at the time. Trump was being so outrageous and so attacking of the media that a lot of people in the media, I think, were sort of like trying to get their bearings. And you were interesting to them because they did want this framing of an anti-Trump Republican. And I understand that because it's simple and it's an easy way to explain it to their audience. But I know it was frustrating for us because we couldn't really insert you in the conversation in a way that wasn't Trump centric. And that made my job very hard. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we accomplished as much as we hoped we could have because the media landscape was just so fixated on Trump and had a really hard time understanding your position. You just had Jane Coaston on. I remember her being one of the few reporters that I was like, she actually gets it. But so many reporters, they and I get it, they don't really have time to like fully comprehend your principled libertarian position, but it did make it very difficult, I think, for us to have any sort of policy conversations because the media landscape was just so hysterical at that time, especially in 2017. It was like a mess. Yeah, it was the worst in the sense that anytime they wanted me on TV, they just wanted me there to criticize Donald Trump. And what I wanted to do was go on to TV to promote libertarianism promote my views talk about why a piece of legislation is bad regardless of trump like trump has nothing to do with this particular thing or he might have something to do with it but it's like secondary in nature the the real problem is the legislation why is it always framed as something having to do with donald trump and, and it it was very frustrating because then we had to turn down so many interview requests where i wanted to get out there and talk about things but I knew I was just going to be paraded for their own partisan political purposes, and that wasn't what I was about. I was never in it. I, I didn't get into Congress to talk about Donald Trump. I got into Congress to talk about my ideas and to protect liberty, and and they wouldn't really let me do that at that time. No matter how hard we tried to get, get them to to accept it, they wouldn't accept it. They still wanted to make me a never-Trump guy. They did. And Make you a never Trump guy. Remember when Chris Cuomo called my cell phone and he was like, Justin can have the whole hour. Like, <laughs> I know that people understand like the extent to which every single person in media was contacting me to get you on, but you didn't, you didn't want to. And I, it actually took me some time. I was frustrated. I was like, I want Justin on TV. But then like, I started to understand the more requests I was getting, how problematic the framing was and how it wouldn't have been good for your brand because they were, they were trying to make you Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, it it didn't really make sense for you. But it's it's frustrating and it speaks to really some problems with how the media reports, but also just like the way the media was back then. I, I actually think in some in some respects it's a little bit better with Trump out of office. Um, but you know, it's still very clickbaity and simplistic. And the, the incentives they they lean toward that. So I, I get it. it. It's kind of a, there's a market for it. Yeah, since. We brought up Cheney and Kinzinger a couple of times here. They're just playing the same performance that everyone else is playing. They're not, it, what they're doing is not principled. 
Cheney and Kinzinger voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and in 2020. This is something that is not talked about enough. They voted for Donald Trump in 2020. I didn't know that. Yeah, not just 2016. And if you look back at their criticisms, to the extent they have any, and Kinzinger had a few more than Cheney, it was almost all military-related. It was about Donald Trump saying something that seemed uh, not hawkish enough, and then Kinzinger would get upset about it. And Cheney had very little, if anything, because she was conference chair uh, for a period there, and so she was highly reluctant to criticize Donald Trump. These are people who waited until basically Trump had lost the election and then uh, more true after January 6th, where they came out and said, like, oh, he's so terrible. But that's that to me is just more theatrics. It's the same kind of thing that I saw happen to my Freedom Caucus colleagues. They just went in the other direction. It's just another form of um, being captured by your audience where they, after the election and after January 6th, thought to themselves, I never really liked this guy. I've been play acting all these years and I've been voting for him and pretending like he's good. But now he's done. This is his this is his downfall. And so they went with it and they miscalculated. They thought Republicans were going to be with them when they finally decided we're going to turn on Trump, and they miscalculated, leaving them with only one audience they could turn to, which is the left. So now they're the left's darlings, and that's what they're doing. But it's the same kind of performance art. It's not based on principle. And that's what drives me crazy, is that for those four years, I was following my principles the same way I did under Obama. I said the same things. I made the same criticisms. I've had the receipts on Twitter so many times so people can see if I criticize Trump for something, I almost certainly criticized Obama for something similar on policy. So, um, and I do the same thing with Joe Biden. I'm a libertarian. I, I'm promoting libertarian principles and I'm doing what I think promotes human cooperation and protects the rights of the people I was elected to serve. That's how I operate. But then you have these other people who are just playing a game. It's just, what can get them ahead? And if they have to change their principles on a dime, they'll change them because the audience is different. And yeah. they, wanna, they want to appeal to a particular audience. Well, th- this was the issue with trying to make the media understand that. And really, I think the challenge for a communications director working for someone who's very unusual by politician standards, I don't think people even really had a concept in the media of how to understand where you were coming from because the vast, vast majority of politicians are not like you, which you know. Um, So I think part of it was just like, you know, principled libertarians don't typically get elected to Congress. So I can't (laughs) blame the media for not understanding you. And I, I also understand why they wanted to shoehorn you in for their own purposes, but it certainly made my job all but impossible in a way during that particular time frame because 2016 to 2018 was like the you know hysteria of Trump and the media feeding off of each other's worst instincts. I mean it got it got pretty bad really uh during that time. It was almost insufferable to just watch anything. <laughs> yeah, and I I still get a kick out of how the media especially but a lot of people on Twitter don't quite get what I'm about. Like today I tweeted about Title 42, which is this um, 
this power that the Biden administration is using that the Trump administration also used to expel people who are particularly trying to seek asylum. Now, there are people who argue that not all these people are trying to seek asylum. Understood. But the idea is that you can expel them without any process. And under Title 42, the argument is you're expelling them because of COVID. So it's a pandemic era sort of power. Today, I tweeted about how governors have been abusing their powers, using emergency powers for the last couple of years, claiming COVID as the excuse for never giving up their powers, for basically never allowing the legislature to handle this, even though in our democratic system, the legislature is supposed to represent the people. You don't just say there's an emergency and now the governor gets to do whatever. So in my tweet, I talk about how governors abused their power under COVID. And now the administration continues to abuse power by using COVID as an excuse for these Title 42 expulsions. And people don't know what to do with the tweet because Republicans are out there saying Title 42 is so great, even though Title 42 is literally a COVID-era power where the government is going around the normal process and expelling people without any due process. So it violates civil liberties in the same way that all of these Republicans complained Democratic governors were doing. So it's like there's such inconsistency and hypocrisy, and people don't know how to handle the tweet. They can only come back with sort of partisan claims, with the left saying, oh, the governors weren't that bad. This is a different thing altogether. Or the right saying, do you want illegal immigrants flooding the country? Like, well, even if you don't want illegal immigrants flooding the country, there should be no executive overreach like this where the executive branch just says, hey, we're going to expel people without any process. Well, this is this just goes back to, you know, what we were talking about, about partisanship. I mean, people really like I think negative partisanship is probably the the driving force among a lot of people's thinking. And it has been for a while. It's well, no matter how bad the one side is, my side is better. And that, as you've said, you've said this a ton, that is what allows for all of these abuses is the constantly making um, excuses for your own, quote, side. Um, and this is just the latest example of that. I mean, this isn't new. This is what's been going on for a long time. And it's what leads people um, to vote the way they do, I think. I mean, uh, how, I don't really know many Democrats that were like super enthusiastic about Joe Biden. He's kind of very like whatever. I think people were just enthusiastic to vote against Trump. Um, and it, this is, I think, really at the, the root of everything. But I don't know how you um, get people to think in more of a principled way as opposed to a partisan way. That's like a very tough question. And I know you're working on it, but I mean, just the way people react, it, it's telling. Yeah, it's human nature. And it is tough to get people to think in a different way. What I've increasingly seen, especially from the left, is this idea that anytime you are critical of Republicans and Democrats. They say you you are somehow the partisan for being critical of both Republicans and Democrats because they'll say, don't both sides this. There's one side that's bad and the other side is good or one side is outrageously bad and the other side is not so bad. So don't both sides this. So they turn it, they flip the whole thing around where Because you are critical of Republicans and Democrats, you are somehow the partisan. 
And they are the nonpartisans for thinking the Democrats are great and the Republicans are terrible, or that the Democrats are pretty good and the Republicans are horrendous. And they, they're blind to the, the actual reality of what's going on, that there is a systemic problem here, and it cuts across the entire political spectrum. And ironically, a lot of the people I run into on the left, on Twitter at least, this is not the real world, but the Twitter world, ironically, a lot of these people, they, they, they're the ones who are not seeing the reality of the situation. They're the ones who are claiming that Republicans are the problem for everything, and that's that's where all partisanship comes from, but they're being partisan in the process. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of ironic, and but it is a human nature thing, and that, that's what's tough. I do think, and I, I saw this when I worked for you, I, I think people on Twitter, like I said before, tend to be sort of the most extreme, and if they're engaging with you, they're probably like, you know, politically minded, and so that they have these tendencies, but you always said, and you were right, that like in the real world, when you go out to town halls and explain things to people, I, I do think like people that are less invested emotionally in politics are more able to see that the problem is from both sides. Like, and I get it, like sometimes one side is worse, but like if you don't hold your quote own side accountable, then nothing is ever going to get better. But I think you were reaching like kind of more normal people. I, some people's brains have been broken by politics. I, I don't even know how you reach like people who are just that partisan. Um, but it's a problem though, because those are the people who are most engaged and probably the most likely to vote. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think people at my town halls, for example, when I got a chance to speak to them at length, would run into the same sorts of problems. When I'd go to a town hall and get a chance to actually talk about things at length, they could see why there was a systemic problem. But on Twitter, it doesn't really show up. And the the weird thing is, there's this assumption they often make that if you are criticizing both sides, that you are also equating the sides, but nobody's equating them. They're both bad and sometimes for the same ways and sometimes for very different, yeah. different reasons. So I do think equating <laughs> the equating thing is, is the, the issue because anytime you, you know, criticize the Democrats, it's like, so you're for Trump. And it's like, or even just, I mean, I've said things too, where I criticize something and they're like, it's not as bad as Trump. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not saying it's as bad as Trump. Like <laughs> a random Democrat, like doing something is not as bad as Trump, but it's also okay for that random Democrat to have done a bad thing. Like there are, you know, different layers and scales of this. So it's tough, but honestly, all of this is part of why I've migrated away from active politics and more toward policy. Like, there's a reason I've been, you know, more in the think tank world in recent years, because I've just, to be honest, gotten so sick of all of this. And I mean, I commend you for trying to reach people, but I, um, I've moved to the policy world because I just politics has like made my brain insane. Like, I feel like I've become a worse person the more I engage with it. I don't know if that's <laughs> Sort of where I'm at. Oh, no, I totally understand it. I mean, you would know having worked for me, but I was looking for ways to get out of politics for a while. I was not happy about the way things were trending. And I could see even as early as 2014 and 2015 that people's ability to be persuaded through the political process was waning. And what I what I mean is we didn't have a functioning system 
anymore. As time went on, the process, even in Congress, became so top-down that we couldn't actually legislate the way that I thought we'd be able to when I entered Congress. And it was certainly different when I was in the state house. There was more of an ability to modify legislation and and get my changes um, actually enacted. As time went on, I started to see I couldn't actually do that. So I came to recognize that someone on the outside has as much, if not more, power than someone on the inside. Like someone on TV, like Tucker Carlson, as an example has way more influence than any member of Congress. Way, way more. It's not even close. Member of Congress, a member of Congress can't do anything. A member of Congress can't even even amend legislation. You can introduce bills, but they're not going anywhere. Nobody's taking them up. The Speaker of the House isn't putting that bill on the floor. So I have all sorts of bills that were introduced that are great ideas. Many of them, for example, related to criminal justice reform. Speaker Pelosi was never going to take those up. She was never interested in that. It was totally top-down. You couldn't even offer amendments on the House floor unless they went through the Speaker's office. They basically had to go through the Rules Committee, go through the Speaker. So you end up with a situation where members of Congress do not actually have more power than people on the outside. I've said this several times now that Thomas Massey and I can do the exact same things. We can both tweet. That's what we can do. He doesn't have more of an ability to do anything now within Congress, no offense, Thomas, but he doesn't have more of an ability to do something within Congress than I do. Someone could say, well, it's a platform for getting your ideas out there. I can, I can understand that um, someone might use it as a platform, but how long are you going to stay there and just use it as a platform without any ability to actually move legislation and you're just sitting there essentially spinning your wheels? Yeah, no, I remember this. I, I mean, I remember not long after I stopped working for you, I, I remember you were trying to decide what you wanted to do. And I get it because by the time I was working for you in 2016, I mean, Congress was essentially shut down. And I talked about this at length, you know, the amendment process, all that. Yeah, legislating doesn't happen. And so I, I do see fairly little value in Congress as it currently is constituted. And that makes me sad because I'm actually like a legislative supremacist. I believe it should be the foremost branch of government. <laughs> it is disappointing, but that, that sort of informs my move toward policy and um, sort of a coalitions-based approach to policy too. I mean, I, I've only just started at R Street in the past month, but I've kind of become convinced that like you need people on the outside from all sides advocating on something to create the incentives for leadership to take action. Because unfortunately, you have to get to leadership. I don't like that that's how it works. But, you know, I've been on the inside enough to see that that is how it works. And I I wish we could reform Congress systemically, but I'm not super optimistic that that's going to happen. I mean, maybe you feel differently, but how do you wrest power from leadership? I, I don't see it changing. And so... I feel like they have to be influenced from the outside and feel that there's a, an incentive to change um, because it's not going to happen from the inside from my perspective. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, you tend to push on substantive policy more than process though, right? Like is our street advocating for a lot of procedural or process changes within Congress? To, to some degree, but I'm thinking when I'm talking about the coalition's approach, I'm thinking more about policy, like criminal justice reform, that type of yeah. thing. Now, if you look at uh, our street's governance work, there is some of that. Uh, Jonathan Bidlack and his team are, are working on some process stuff. So that's sure. 
there. But that's actually different from what I mean in terms of the coalition approach where you create that public, you know, incentive structure to make Congress act. Because, I mean, I remember you even said this to your constituents when you were in Congress. You were like, they have to, like, the people in Congress need to know that you feel a certain way if they're going to change anything. But I just don't see, I was talking more about the coalition's approach Mm -hmm. to substantive legislation. I'm... I wish I were more optimistic about systemic change in Congress. I'd like to see it happen. I'm glad there are people working on specific policy proposals. I don't know how you convince leadership to give up power. They seem scared of their own um, constituencies and their own Congress people in a way. Like that's, that's my perception. They don't want those people to have access to power. I mean, Paul Ryan and John Boehner didn't want the Freedom Caucus to have access to power. I, does Pelosi feel the same way about like the squad? I, I mean, they, they don't, they're anti-democracy, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're all anti-democracy. And you're right um, in terms of what can be done. I, I agree that it doesn't look good in the near term, but it is sad that outside organizations are now in a position where they basically just have to try to convince leadership for the most part. There's not the same ability to influence rank and file member of, members of Congress and have it mean anything. Like you can talk to all the rank and file members you want, but if they don't really have a say in the entire thing, it doesn't have as much weight. Of course, it's important to reach as many people as possible, but at the end of the day, you know and our street knows and every other outside group knows you go to the speaker of the house and you have to have someone at the top who basically buys into what you're selling. Otherwise it's not really moving anywhere. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, you know, you can, you can influence a critical mass of, you know, rank and file members, but there has to be an incentive for leadership to do something. And that that's the issue. So I do think, you know, influencing rank and file members is important, but it, it, Unfortunately, because of the way the House especially is currently operating, it has to be influencing them so, you know, the leadership feels they have to act. I really just believe it's about incentives at the end of the day. Um, And I wish I wish the legislative process were more open at work. Honestly, working for you made me more cynical, not because of you personally, but because (laughs) of the process. Um, and I, I'm, yeah, it's, it's gotten harder and, and worse in terms of actual legislating, but I do feel good at least being able to advocate for, for specific policies and at least, you know, creating model legislation for people to consider. I, I feel like at least that is some use of my skills and background and ability because I just, I don't feel like working in Congress itself was having as much of an effect as I hoped it would. And I, I hate to say that, but that's just how I feel. Yeah, no, you're right. And That's part of what I'm thinking about, too. Even in hosting this podcast, what I was thinking about was reaching ordinary people, not in Congress, not people in leadership, just get the majority of the public over time to understand some of these issues, even if they can just get a glimpse of how broken the structure is and get a sense that they need to do something about it, it can make a difference. I, I want people to be charged up about the functioning of Congress, the functioning of our system, that there is a systemic problem. It's not just 
a few bad apples. Like there's like if only you got rid of Marjorie Taylor Greene or something. Like people think things like that, which is insane. If only this person were wasn't wasn't there, or if only that person wasn't there, then everything would run perfectly. And that's total nonsense. The problem goes throughout the system. It includes Speaker Pelosi, it includes Kevin McCarthy, it includes the entire leadership structure and the committee structure and everything. There's a there is a problem with our government in that there is no democracy, really. We don't really have a democratic system, despite the fact that many of them will day in, day in and day out talk about how important democracy is. And then when they get to Congress, it's like my way or the highway. I'm in leadership and we're doing it this way and no one's going to change that. And and so for me, it's about now getting on the outside, working on projects on the outside Having a podcast where I bring people on, we can talk about these sorts of things. I don't talk just about political stuff, obviously, on this podcast. I'll talk about any topic. But getting people getting people to see what's going on on the inside, I think, is the best way to affect change at this point. I don't think you're ever going to convince enough members of Congress that they have to stand up to the Speaker. I, I tried. I really tried to get members of Congress to coalesce, hey, let's put a stop to this. The Speaker is acting like a tyrant. Let, let's put a stop to this. We just need 20 of us. 20 of us band together. We can get this speaker to stop doing this and allow us to have amendments on the floor and to debate things in a real way. And you can't even get 20 people. Yeah. Even 20 people is impossible. You, know, you can get, you, you try that strategy and, and the whole point of the Freedom Caucus was that strategy. That's why it exists. It doesn't exist for that reason anymore. These days it's just like some kind of, I don't know, uh, MAGA cheerleading team or something, but it's not, it's not what it was supposed to be, which is a group of people who are organized to make sure the system is representative. It was never started as a conservative group or as a right wing group. It was a group that was intended to open up the system. Look at the mission statement, which I wrote, by the way. Oh, I know. Uh, I assuming, know. assuming they haven't changed the mission statement. I, I don't know if they've changed it, but the mission statement I wrote, it's a good mission statement because it's about opening up the process for everyone. It's not about conservatism or anything else. And they've moved so far away from that. So I, I used to try like, hey, we need to stand up to this leadership team so that everyone can participate, Republicans and Democrats. I wanted everyone to be able to participate. And at most you'd get like, seven eight people who side who would side with you and that's just not enough you need a couple dozen you need three dozen maybe four dozen to pull it off and you you just can't find that so it's it's sad that in a house of 435 members you can't get 10 percent of the members to join you well this is exactly why i feel like change is only going to come from the outside and you're right educating the public is is critical um of course as we discussed breaking through that partisan mindset is a little bit tough but I'm guessing that the Freedom Caucus probably changed their mission statement to build the wall. Like, that wouldn't <laughs> me at this point. But, yeah, I mean, I, I do see it as sort of a two-pronged approach. I agree with, you know, educating the public and getting people to understand the systemic problems. But I do think from the policy side, I mean, they're, like, I used to work at Cato. Both Cato and R Street have really, I think, effective government affairs teams. That's still important. Um, I do think you still need principled, smart people going to Congress, even the rank and file members, and advocating for good policy, because at least that becomes part of the discussion. The question is, unfortunately, with how it works now, how do you influence the leadership from that, 
you know, platform, it's hard. But I, I think it's work that still needs to be done. Um, unfortunately, though, the rank and file members, they, as you well know, can do little right now to actually pass legislation. So I hope that changes. I really hope it changes in the future. Um, but yeah, right now it's it's an uphill battle. But I think it is still important to at least inject those policy discussions. And part of it, though, it's all incentives. Like, I think to the extent that criminal justice reforms at all have even gotten attention on the federal level is because of what's been happening outside of Congress. It's, you know, politicians seeing people are worried about policing, that type of thing. It, it does come from the outside. Um, and that's actually something my perspective has shifted on because I, I wanted to work in politics because I thought you could better affect change from the inside. Uh, having been on the inside, I'm not not so sure about that anymore. <laughs> my so let's change. Let's take a caller. Um, We'll have Pedro come on. Uh, Good evening, Justin and Corey. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Pedro. Hi. How are you? Uh, Quick remark. Your your remark about uh, the bill not going to the floor was really spot on. Uh, I really, I actually never did know that fact that you are a member of Congress and your bill just cannot just go anywhere. I think it's kind of undemocratic, like uh, many other things on the on the American political system. Uh, I have to say that I'm a citizen of Portugal, so I don't know very much about the American system, but uh, I have a few ideas that are that I would just like to to share, and then I have a question for for Corey. Sure, if, uh, if the ideas are quick, Pedro. Yeah, yeah, very quick, very quick. Okay. So I think uh, I think uh, c- Congress should be abolished uh, because it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> well, that was yeah, quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, the, the, yeah. there should be like a just a, a, a one chamber of uh, one chamber of uh, of a parla- one parliamentary chamber, not two. Uh, because the the upper chamber does not really reflect the country as a whole. It's just one senator of Montana, which is uh, just a few people, and uh, California has mil- more millions, and it's not really representative. Uh, th- that that basically was my my comment. Uh, the the. Uh, the I actually don't know how does it work in Portugal. This this fact that the bill cannot go to the floor. Uh, if you want, I can elaborate on politics of Portugal. Maybe another day. Yeah. Uh, uh, Portugal is actually a very left leaning country. We have communists in Congress. The the is it's kind of a Bernie Sanders socialist prime minister right now. Uh, anyway, the, the question for Corey is: uh, What do you think is uh, an important policy issue that should be one or several that should be debated in in Congress? Well, ideally, if Congress were actually legislating, there would be a number of policies that I think are critical. Um, I think a lot of uh, you know Justin before he left had a qualified immunity bill that I think would have been really important to help reform policing. Um, and, you know, there are so many things that would be really important to do. Um, there's so many things around budgeting, changing how much money the federal government spends, really a bit out of hand. There are so many policies I would love to see passed. But I think part of what Justin and I are talking about is that 
the way Congress currently operates, those policies aren't likely to get through. So if I could see one thing change in Congress, it would be the way Congress works. I would wish that the leadership would give more power back to the rank and file members. How to convince them of that is the uphill battle part. Um, but for me, if I could change one thing about Congress, I think right now that's more important than the specific policies because the policies will flow from Congress operating better. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, oh, thanks, Pedro. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too. All right, let's go to um, let's go to Mason. Hi, guys. Hey, Mason. Um, okay, so my I want to like have a quick disclaimer that I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a libertarian in like the typical sense of the word. Um, I think Bernie Sanders should be the president right now. Katie Porter's my favorite representative, but I agree with you on like a lot of issues. And more importantly, I agree with you on the fact that Congress needs to be a little bit different than it is right now. And what I'm wondering is like, as somebody who would vote for a third party, I don't necessarily know if I'd vote for the libertarian party. Cause I don't know if I'm aligned with all the issues exactly, but I'm curious as to like how we can get third parties, like, especially in states like, like Michigan and like swing states um, and places where we have ballot initiatives, like would it help if we could get like ranked choice voting on the ballot initiative? Would it help to do those things? Cause I'm in Michigan and I know that we've done a lot of things through ballot initiative that our, our legislature just hasn't done. So I guess I'm curious as to like how we can get some third parties like into Congress and doing things that they're not able to do right now. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I'll touch on this because I'm from Michigan and you're from Michigan. So to keep it short and just focus on Michigan, Michigan is one of the most difficult states for third party and independent candidates to win because we have a lot of difficult ballot rules, but we also have straight ticket voting, which most states don't have anymore. There are very few states in the country that have straight ticket voting, which means someone can walk in in Michigan, for those who aren't from Michigan, and they can just pick Republican Party or Democratic Party at the top, and they can just walk out. That basically covers their ballot for all of the partisan races. They've just picked one party, and then they move on and they go home. As a result, there will be independent candidates or even third-party candidates, like a Libertarian Party candidate, where they don't necessarily have a whole slate of candidates up and down the ballot, but they've got one candidate somewhere on the ballot. Those candidates never really get considered because they've they've made it so easy to just pick one party and move on. They've created this incentive. And I've always found this weird because it is precisely the people who can who will fill in the circle for one party who don't actually take that long filling out their ballot. Like if you know that you're gonna vote for all Republicans, it doesn't really take you that long to fill out your ballot. So it's not saving that much time. All it's doing is preventing people from looking further down the ballot to races where there might be independent third-party candidates and um, and where they might choose one of those candidates as opposed to one of the old-party candidates. So uh, straight-ticket voting has been a real hindrance. That's why in Michigan, you rarely, if ever, I actually cannot think of an independent who has won in Michigan. Now, I'm not saying it's never happened, but I, do, I can't remember a time it's happened. I can't think of an independent who's won anywhere in the state. Um, so that is a real problem in our state. And 
that's why I'm a proponent of alternative voting systems like ranked choice voting. Now, I want to think through the details of how it works. Alaska has a particular type of system that they've just implemented. It would be interesting to see how that system works because it it seems to have some features that might be beneficial to third-party and independent candidates. Whatever the case, we need to develop different voting systems that allow people who are not in the two old parties to have the same opportunity to get elected, to, to have their name seen on the ballot, and to be selected on the ballot as the old parties. And as you know, one of the problems we face being in one of the smaller parties, and the Libertarian Party is solidly the third biggest party, but it's still one of the small parties, is that a lot of people don't think you can win. And so they don't vote for you simply because they think one of the two old parties is going to win. It's going to be the Republicans or the Democrats. And so they don't choose you. But with something like ranked choice voting, they might say, well, I'll choose the Libertarian. And if that person doesn't win, um, I have a second choice. My second choice is a Republican or my second choice is a Democrat. So it allows people to move beyond that apprehension they have about voting for someone who's not in the major parties. A lot of times you'll have a very qualified candidate who's running as a libertarian or running in some other party, but they don't really get the same um, appeal. They don't draw the same number of voters because people are afraid to vote for them because they think, well, the party I like the least is the one that's going to win if I do that. Yeah, yeah, I think um, that's, like, an important conversation that we got to start having um, because everybody's like, oh, yeah, we can't vote for them because that's just a, a throwaway vote. And I feel like that's what ranked choice voting takes away. So I guess, like, the second part of the question is, like, would that be able to be passed through a ballot initiative? Because I know, like, that's what we did with marijuana in the state of Michigan, and we have some of the most lax marijuana laws because the legislature was too busy dealing with their own Rick Snyder mess. So I guess what I'm wondering is, like, would that be something that's, like, feasible through a ballot initiative? Yes. And I I would encourage people in Michigan to push for that kind of ballot initiative. Now, I haven't endorsed any particular ballot initiative because it depends on the language of the particular initiative. But Mm -hmm. I do think we should have some ballot initiative to address this problem, both with straight-ticket voting and with the fact that we don't have an alternative voting system that will allow third-party and independent candidates to have the same opportunity to to be selected um, as an elected official. So, yeah, I would push for that. And in a state like Michigan, our ballot initiative requirements are relatively minimal compared to other states. So it's, it's easier to get a ballot initiative through than it might be in another state. So I would strongly encourage people to coalesce around that and whether you're on the right or the left i mean libertarians should work with people in the green party and should work with with people all across the political spectrum to get this kind of thing done and i think there are a lot of americans who feel disenfranchised who don't feel that connected to the republicans and democrats they might not be libertarians they might not be green party members or whatever it might be but they would be interested in having more choices so I think you can build a very big coalition for this and then watch the two old parties come out screaming and attacking it. Um, <laughs> they'll definitely come after it, but that's okay. So you just got to be ready to fight. And um, and I mean that in the, uh, you know, 
uh, not in the literal sense, uh, physical fighting, but I, I mean, you gotta be ready to go out there and work hard and, um, and push back against what they're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. All right, let's go to armchair. Although I am apprehensive, unless the person's real name is armchair. It's not, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, you can call me armchair for 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 now. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Uh, this is super interesting. <clears throat> yeah. No problem. Yeah. Um, so just to uh, give you a little bit of a context where I'm coming from, I am personally not. Uh, a Republican or a Libertarian. I'm very left-wing, uh, like I'd say, uh, you know, uh, progressive, uh, and I'm like the previous caller, like a really big Bernie Sanders fan. Uh, but what I want to ask is, uh, from your perspective as a Libertarian, um, like you mentioned some structural issues that uh, prevent Congress from really representing the the will of the people. Um the progressive position on this, and I guess like the left-leaning position in general, again, I'm not specifically right now talking about uh, the moderate Democrats who might be getting into fights with you on Twitter and want to, you know, uh, portray uh, the world as, uh, you know, Democrats are awesome and then Republicans are terrible. Uh, the progressive position, I'd say, is more in line with yours from the standpoint mm -hmm. of basically, you know, both parties really suck. And um, and something needs to be done about it. But the way the solution is presented is very different. So, um, uh, you know, as as far as I understand your uh, ideology, a more libertarian 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 meaning uh, leaning ideology, it's more towards uh, allowing business and private enterprise to uh, to flourish. The progressive position is much more hawkish on that. So we see uh, big business and money in, uh, in elections and particularly funding, uh, private funding of elections as sort of one of the main issues that really cripples democracy, because essentially you have candidates who uh, are able to earn huge amounts of money. And then, you know, a lot of people basically say, if they're you know, raising so much money, then after they get elected, they're essentially beholden to these special interests and, and corporations. Uh, what do you say to that? Do you agree with that? Or do you think that's not that major of an issue? Well, Corey, do you want to start with this one? Yeah, sure. So um, I think that obviously progressives and libertarians are probably going to have some degree of difference in terms of what you were just describing, money and politics, that type of thing. But I think this goes back to the initial point where we should be having these debates in Congress. The problem is right now that's not happening. Like Justin, when he was in Congress, couldn't go to the floor and have that debate with his more progressive colleagues because it wasn't possible. Leadership wasn't allowing it. So I actually don't think you need to agree on, you know, money in politics or the role of business in the economy to agree that we need to have a more democratic Congress so we can actually debate these topics and then come to a resolution that is more representative of what the people in America believe. I know Justin has said something that I, I think is really profound, where he says that the outcomes should be um, discovered and not dictated in Congress. And I'm sure he can expand upon that. But I do think, you know, principled progressives and libertarians need to come together despite policy differences to allow a more democratic system so that we can actually hash out these different policy differences.
to me, it's putting the cart before the horse to even debate, you know, the, the minutia of where our differences are if we can't actually affect any of these changes in Congress. So I feel pretty strongly that, that the structural change is really the critical thing that we need to be focusing on now. I know that's not as sexy to some people, but it's really sort of the core issue in my view. Yeah, I think Armchair touched on a very good point when he said that the problem I often run into on Twitter is not from progressives. It's from people who are sort of establishment Democrats. I do agree that there's more common ground between libertarians and progressives than there is between libertarians and establishment Democrats. The establishment Democrats tend to fall into the same trap that a lot of Republicans fall into, which is it's rah, rah, rah. My team's right. Your team's bad. Um, and justifies the means. So as long as they can get whatever outcome makes their team happy, even if it's just a, a small change in the law, but they can say they they won, that's what counts. It's almost like a sport where it, the actual ideology and philosophy and principles and policy don't really matter that much. What matters is winning and losing. And if their team wins, that's good. And if the other team loses, that's good. So you know, therefore Biden, because Biden is against Republicans and whether Biden accomplishes anything or not is not really the point. He's just better than the Republicans and that's what counts. And I think that is a trap for people. I actually do find common ground a lot of times with people in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party because I find that they are actually coming at it from a more principled perspective, and I can relate to where they're coming from, even if I disagree with them. I agree that money in politics is a problem. I can tell you this as someone who's experienced this problem, because I was always a person who did not get much support from, say, corporate interests, right? When you're a libertarian – you're not really interested in, in helping big business get some kind of special treatment. Like the, the whole idea of libertarianism is equality before the law. That's like a central principle of libertarianism is this idea that everyone is treated equally before the law, which means there are no special privileges for anyone. And I was consistently against all of these handouts and special favors As a Republican, I had the lowest score of any Republican from the Chamber of Commerce, which is kind of funny because sometimes the um, MAGA people will come onto my Twitter and they think that I'm the Chamber of Commerce person when actually I had by far the lowest score of any of the Republicans. I wasn't even endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce. They endorsed almost all the Republicans, uh, at least at one time. So, uh, yeah, libertarians are against these special favors. They're against special handouts. They're they're against doing things uh, to the benefit of corporations at the expense of people. That doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with the proposed solutions that many of the progressive left will come up with. Because what I find is a lot of people on the left will come up with this idea that, well, these corporations are bad, so let's put all power in the biggest corporation of all, the federal government. And that seems counterintuitive that you are trying to stop concentration of power and then you're concentrating all power in one place while doing that. So 
we can have these kinds of debates, but Corey's right. We should have those discussions in public, on the House floor, on the Senate floor, but we don't actually have that system now. And so what I say to a lot of people in my district, when I was a representative, I'd go to town halls and we'd have these conversations and I'd say, you're concerned about my position on X and I understand your concerns and I have a lot of concerns with what Republicans are doing. I have a lot of concerns with what Democrats are doing. The problem is we actually have no ability to work through these differences. There's no place. Congress is supposed to be that place where we discover outcomes, but there's no place right now to have that discovery process. And so we need to restore that because everything that you want, it might not align with what I want, but I will fight for your right to share your ideas and to debate your ideas. And that's where we need to be as a country, where we fight for each other's right to at least speak on these ideas and debate them, because that's the only way we'll come to some kind of compromise or understanding. And I understand that that means that a lot of times I'm going to go to the House floor and I'm going to have a debate with people and I'm going to lose. And that's okay because that's our system. There is no such system that can be achieved that is a democratic system that feels fair to people where you always get your way. There, there is no such thing. What the Republicans and Democrats are doing now is just might makes right, where one party takes power and then they basically just run roughshod over the other party. And they don't even do good things while doing that. Like, neither party does anything impressive while they're doing that. But that's not even the point. Their point is just we got to, you know, win the battle. It's all politics. I want a system where it's not might makes right, where we go onto the floor and we debate these ideas, and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose, and that's okay. And that's a truly democratic system, a truly representative system, with all of the constitutional limitations, of course, when I talk about democratic system. Um, you know, because there are many constitutional restrictions on what can be passed, and like in the Bill of Rights, for example. Uh, but I want a, tr a democratic system in the uh, in the sense that is most compatible with liberty, and that means we have a robust debate in Congress. So, thanks. Thanks for your answer. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. All right, let's go to James. I guess when one caller came in, we got a, a several callers after that. So let's go to James. It like really uh, spurred things on. James, are you there? All right. Well, James, if you do come back, just get back into the get back into the queue, and then I'll take you up again. Is he the last caller? Yeah, I'll try James one more time. Nope, he's gone. Okay, James, just get back in the queue if you do have a question. So, what do you think about this Madison Cawthorn situation? <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that and what you think. Um, he said that. He was asked to join some orgies and that what did he witness people doing cocaine? Yeah. And he and what was interesting was he specifically said key bump. And I was like, I don't know anything about that. 
um, because like I don't do any drugs, but <laughs> I I was I found it funny that he was using specific terminology, which indicated to me maybe he's been uh, involved. Well, I thought it was funny. I actually had a joke tweet about it because I took more issue with the fact that um, he said that Congress was like House of Cards. I was like, orgies, sure, cocaine, sure, like those things don't surprise me. But he was like, it's really like House of Cards. I'm like, has this kid watched House of Cards? Like, <laughs> that show seems like some degree of competency to be nefarious. I was like, mm, no. Now, do I think he was personally invited to orgies? Like, I find that unlikely. But are like, is there like orgy adjacent activity on Capitol Hill? Like, absolutely. But I think he was just being dramatic. I like highly doubt anyone walked up to him and was like, asking him to participate in a specific orgy. That's just me. Yeah, I I agree. I think he was likely exaggerating, and he allegedly claimed he was exaggerating. But on the other hand, having served in Congress, while no one's asked me to participate in any orgies or to do cocaine with them, it would not surprise me if that were happening. Like, that would not be surprising. That's, That's why... All of these other congressmen who are so um, indignant about this thing, they're like outraged that he said this. I'm not sure that some of them aren't involved in stuff like this. I I can't say I'm not going to say like he said where he's heard it and seen it. But I've seen other things like I've seen members of Congress give speeches on the House floor while drunk. (laughs) So like. I have seen things. I've seen members of Congress talk about going out and finding some women to sleep with. So, okay. like, I this stuff does not surprise me. They didn't ask me about it, but, well, but <laughs> kind of funny. You were like the only libertarian member of Congress, but you're also like personally super straight edge. Like, I think that can <laughs> some people. <laughs> But um, no, I mean, I I thought it was funny. I only briefly saw this, but apparently Kevin McCarthy is like really pissed off that he said that. And I'm like, I don't know, Kevin, you're protesting like a little too much. Like, what are you (laughs) mad about? Like, (laughs) I just found that funny. Yeah, that was my sense, too, that some of these members of Congress in response, and I have no love for, for Madison Cawthorn, to be clear. I've criticized him several times for various things. Um. I, I think in most respects, he's unqualified to be a member of Congress. But having said that, I did think that a lot of the responses seemed like they were hitting home a little bit. Like they're like, this was, this is really, you know, uh, hitting a nerve with some people for some reason. And look, I've seen crazy things in Congress. And while no one's asked me to participate in any of that stuff, like it wouldn't surprise me. This, this is these are not um, overwhelmingly morally upright people who are out doing the right thing every day. They want to pretend like they are so they can, you know, sell themselves to the world as like, well, if you need to put us in charge, especially the Republicans right now. They're worried about getting the majority. And I think all Kevin McCarthy is thinking about is this might undermine his chance to become speaker. And so he doesn't want that. He doesn't want people thinking the Republican conference has a bunch of people involved in um, shady activities. So he's really trying to push back on that. But come on, like, are were we all born yesterday? Like these members of Congress 
aren't involved in some corruption from time to time. We've seen it. People get indicted on this stuff. We see it. We see it uh, regularly. So, you know, these are not the best people. And as, as for the House of Cards comparison, the one thing I would say about it is the people on on House of Cards definitely care a lot more about legislation than members of Congress do. Like in most respects, what's unrealistic about House of Cards when you watch it, besides the fact that, you know, I think murder is probably too far. I, I've never, uh, I don't suspect any of my colleagues of murder, but um, besides that fact, I think that what's unrealistic is how much they care about the legislation and the policy in the show in a way that is not realistic. In real life, these members of Congress don't really care much about the policy at all. They don't even know what the bill says. No, they don't. They don't know at all. Like, there was a bill recently, the recent um, omnibus bill, and it was thousands of pages. And on the same day, I think, that it came out, people voted for it. Overwhelmingly, and it passed. Republicans voted for it. So, like, on the same day, they don't know what's in the bill. And they will pretend and lie to you about why they know, oh, well, uh, bits and pieces of this bill were released over many months and it went through committees. And Nobody knows what's in that bill before they vote on it. And the idea that leadership would tell you, oh, this is what's in the bill and therefore that must be in the bill, that's totally crazy. The leaders are lying to you about what's in the bill. They lie to you regularly about what's in the bill. Well, Justin, I mean, do you think Madison Cawthorn has ever read like you know no i don't think so this is the thing i don't i don't know how many of your colleagues have ever read bills to be honest with you um i mean we this is the thing like this again i feel like a broken record here but it goes to how congress operates like no nobody has any stake whatsoever in the legislation unless you're in leadership or you're like the lobbyist who you know petitioned for whatever is in the bill um but no you're right for anyone who's seen house of cards especially the first season they're like very like they make it seem like legislating is actually a thing that occurs in Congress. <laughs> Unfortunately, does not at this time. <laughs> yeah, and I think Madison Cawthorn is actually a good example of this, where running for Congress has become increasingly like being a contestant on a reality TV show. Yeah. Like it has, it has nothing to do with actually being a legislator. You, you're just trying to be a celebrity, and. I think this is one of the problems with Madison Cawthorn, but it's also a problem with members of Congress generally. And it's not just one party. It's it's both parties and both chambers that it's it's become reality TV and it's performance. They're performing for an audience at home. And it's Cawthorn himself who said, hey, he's not focused on having a staff who are focused on legislation. He wants staff who are focused on communications and media and those kinds of things, because it's just about – um, branding and presenting themselves in a certain way and, you know, but saying the right thing on Twitter that, that gets people, gets it to go viral. He's not wrong, though. I mean, those are the incentives. Like, I'm not surprised that someone yeah. like run for Congress and then act like that. Because what else are they going to do? Like, that's the thing. It is an exercise in branding. And it's really too bad because what other point is there in being in Congress at this point? Like that, that's the reason is, is to brand yourself. I mean, these politicians though, they, 
they think pretty highly of themselves to think they're like that great and able to become celebrities. It's like kind of like, <laughs> you know, a little bit lame. But the problem is, is that there is a universe where that's true. Like, and cable news fuels this. Like, it, it's definitely a, like a symbiotic relationship isn't even the right word. It's more like toxic. Like, they, but they feed on each other because cable news does incentivize performing. And it all sort of just is like this one ugly cycle. But I don't even blame Madison Cawthorn. Like, I think he's responding to the incentives laid out before him. Um, and I think he's not very bright from what I can tell, but he got elected. To he's he's performing because that's what he's, you know, the incentives are for him. So like, yeah, I mean, sure. He's exaggerating about orgies and cocaine, but like, he's also getting at like some degree of truth, sort of that hypocrisy where, as you've said before, like, you know, going on TV and saying one thing and then coming back and saying the other, like they do that a lot of times in their personal lives too. It might not be like an actual orgy, but you know, a lot of times these people are not what they present themselves as and that there is truth to that. Yeah. And I'm interested in seeing what happens to him and if he does name any other names or, or whatever, it it seems like uh, Kevin McCarthy spoke to him and, and sort of chastised him like a child or something I thought it was kind of funny the way he was talking about him um, as though Kevin McCarthy is some role model to people, wow. um, you know, but, 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 but I, I thought it was amusing, but, you know, let's see what happens. Let's see where, where he goes with this and what else he says. Um, I'm sure there are people who do have stories that are true. Even if Madison Cawthorn's making this particular one up, I'm sure people do have stories about really bad things that happen well, that that they might be willing to share. I have I have a suspicion about who Madison Cawthorn may be talking about, but I'm not going to say it on air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I understand, and um, and one of the one of the issues with me was that because I was so ideologically consistent and did not attach myself to leadership. I actually didn't get to see all of the things that were going on. I was detached from it in the sense that leadership stopped inviting me to things in the, in the first few years of Congress, the first, well, certainly the first year of Congress, I think after that, it basically dropped off completely. They sort of, try to win you over. They think maybe you're redeemable from their standpoint. Of course, redeemable from their standpoint means irredeemable uh, to the world. But, but what they think of as redeemable is like um, someone who will be corrupt like them. And for the first year, they really do try to win you over. They're inviting you to things. They're convincing you that if you do X, Y, or Z, they'll put you on the right committee, et cetera. So they, they pull out all the stops because they're like, that's when they can break you. And actually, that is when most of them are broken. It's in the first – I'd say in the first six months, people get broken. Someone comes in and they're principled. Uh, they came in for the right reasons. But within six months, the leadership break them. So one of the things for me is that because I was so quickly persona non grata as far as the leadership uh, was concerned, and as a lot of as far as a lot of my um, colleagues who maybe had more power within the Republican infrastructure were concerned, I didn't get to see all the things. Right, I wasn't invited to the dinners. I wasn't invited to whatever else they were doing, and whatever. I would, yeah, I would hear stories about things, 
but I wasn't invited to the things. Um, I'm guessing Madison Cawthorn is actually invited to things, and there are others who are invited to things who probably do have some very interesting stories to tell from firsthand experience, not from secondhand like I might have. But who knows? Yeah, I don't I don't doubt that. But you're also right about the way like the breaking thing. I, that's interesting. And I, I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the access to power. Um, because I think a lot of people do get elected and they're very, you know, idealistic. I mean, you, you think back to the Tea Party movement, you know, when you were first elected, there were so many people at that time that I at the time sort of hoped would be more like you. But I mean, gosh, they were, they, yeah, they were broken very, very quickly because it's one thing when you're at home and you say, I'm going to, you know, vote against this bailout or this bill. But then, you know, the lobbyists fill your office, the leadership pressures you. And then in your case, I mean, you were primary, right? Like, I think a lot of these legislators fear primaries. And so that's another part of it, too. Um, they're just afraid to do anything against leadership because they think leadership has the power to take them out. And in a lot of cases, it's probably true. Leadership probably does. You you were unusual that you were sort of able to weather that. Um, most people are scared, I think. Well, Corey, before I let you go, let me ask you a little bit, because you said you were a centrist, and I think you said you're a radical centrist. I have said that, yeah. Okay, so are you concerned that centrism doesn't sell? In other words, we've been talking about all the theatrics of Congress. We talked about Madison Cawthorn and the performance arts and all that stuff. Are you concerned that centrism itself doesn't sell? So here's the thing. I've had some debates with, you know, friends about, like, what centrism even means. To me, what I sort of mean when I say radical centrist is that I'm very concerned about authoritarianism emanating from both sides. I, I think that both the left and the right are becoming more authoritarian. So for me, when I say centrism, I'm talking more about resisting authoritarianism from the right and the left. I don't think that's what most people mean by centrism. Like, I think a lot of people mean like, oh, you, you just like, you know, take like half of one issue and half the other issue and you find yourself in the middle. That's not really what I mean. So maybe my language is like not the best, but what I'm trying to do and where I feel like I'm at is resisting authoritarianism just broadly. And it, it comes from both the right and the left. And I think anyone who denies it's coming from both sides is just wrong. Um, it is. And so for me, I'm more interested in sort of a classically liberal consensus, finding people who have been historically Democrats or historically Republicans who want more of a classically liberal framework, even if they disagree on certain minutia of policy issues. So for me, I think it's more about classical liberalism and getting away from partisanship and resisting authoritarianism. Centrism is probably not even the right word. I just um, I, I want to be you know, very aware of the problems with radicalizing both sides in that authoritarian way. I, I think that that is one of the biggest challenges of our times, how we get people to resist that authoritarianism, um, because I think it's, it's really actually a worldwide problem and it, it's coming here, too. Yeah, I'm with you. But when you're on Twitter and you see the partisans on the right and the left and how they use the other side as a foil, like th that other team is so bad and you have to be with our team because they're terrible. And then you have libertarians or classical liberals coming in and saying, hey, like peace and love and authoritarianism's bad. We're we're against all these people who are hurting people. Um, we all just need to get along, etc. Don't you think that people look at that 
And they say, well, that's just not that exciting. I prefer rah, 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 the other people are evil. And as a result, if you tweet something, if you tweet something that's kind and loving and bringing people together, or even let's all stand up against this authoritarianism coming from both sides, you don't get the same traction as if you just say Donald Trump is the worst ever or Joe Biden is the worst ever. Yeah, no, you don't get the same traction. I mean, that's true. Like I'm, I'm well aware of that, but I don't, I don't really see any other option because I tried to work within the Republican party and I think things got worse in the time that I was doing that. So it's very hard for me to say that I'm able to take any other approach except to just try to resist authoritarianism where I can. And yeah, it's not like super popular. I get that. But that's why, like I said, I'm sort of gravitating more toward the the policy um, aspect of this, where can I find people from across the political spectrum who want to work on a certain policy that, you know, does resist authoritarianism? Even if I disagree with them on other things, I want to work with people on places where we agree because I don't really see any other way you can't just elect one party and think things are going to be good. That that's clearly not true. So um, that's the best way I feel I can approach things. I I'm certainly open to the idea that using centrist as a label is probably not helpful. But I I haven't come up with something better. I mean I, I do lean on classical liberal, um, but I do think there's something to be said of holding the center because I do think like typical people are starting to see that authoritarianism on both sides. I think even if they can't articulate it, like there's some sense in a lot of people. And I think a lot of those people consider themselves moderates or centrists. And I think they need to be compelled to resist the growing authoritarianism. So how you do that is an open question, but I I think there's a possible opening there, which of course is a much larger discussion, but I've been thinking a lot about that and thinking about how, um, to get people to sort of converge in a classically liberal way. Yeah, I'm an advocate for just claiming or reclaiming the word liberal itself without the word classical, because I feel like the word classical sometimes makes it seem a little stuffy or something. Yeah. And liberalism is about freedom. It's about human cooperation. And at this moment in history, I think the real battle is between liberalism and illiberalism. And there's massive illiberalism now on the right and the left. And we see this every day and it manifests in different ways and sometimes in the same ways. But I think that's the real battle. And so increasingly I'll be calling myself liberal. I'm a libertarian and the philosophy of libertarianism, in my opinion, is liberalism. That's at the core of it. And if you look back at libertarian thinkers, those who are considered great libertarian thinkers today um, like Hayek, like Mises, they use the word liberal to describe themselves, and they didn't um, append the word classical to it. Uh, they just said, we are liberals, and I think it's important to to reclaim that word. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I talk a lot about illiberalism, um, and I'm glad to see that permeating the general discourse a little more because it wasn't like that in prior years. So I do think there's something to be said of reclaiming the word, and I would love to. I still think people are somewhat confused if you just use liberal, like without a little bit of context, because, you know, people, but I actually think progressives have done like liberals like us a favor because they've actually tried to like distinguish themselves away from liberals. 
Um, so in that regard, I, I do think that's been interesting and good in some ways, but I do think it's probably confusing to the average layperson. Like, I don't think if I went to my normie friends from Massachusetts and said I was a liberal that they would understand like what I meant by that. They would be like, so you're a Democrat now? Like, I think it's still confusing to people. I, I agree with you. And that's why I feel like I can be maybe, uh, if not unique, a uh, significant agent of change here because – People are pretty familiar with the fact that I'm libertarian and many people still associate me with being on the right, you know, thinking of me as more conservative. So if I use the word liberal and I'm very adamant about my views not having changed in any way, my views are the same as they've always been, I think maybe it will get people to reconsider what the word means and I'll be able to adopt it clearly and others will be able to adopt it as well. And I, I agree with you that Democrats and progressives to some extent and other Democrats to uh, in a different way have helped those of us who want to use the word liberal because people on the left increasingly do not use the word. They are using progressive as a word. Sometimes they use social Democrat or socialism or, um, you know, they use other terms. They're not really using the word liberal. They've largely abandoned it, which gives us a chance to to use it. Shall we um, take Mason one more time if he makes it quick? Sure. All right. Okay. I quickly want to say, I agree with everything Corey just said. I would never like describe myself as a centrist, but like the authoritarianism thing. Um, I'm like, I said, I'm like a progressive. I would call myself like a libertarian socialist. I know that sounds like an oxymoron to a lot of people, but like, I, I just want to note like the amount of pushback I've seen from the left when I'm like, hey, Justin Trudeau is, like, an authoritarian. Like, we, we should stay away from that. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you anti-vax. Like, it's, like, really weird and bizarre how, like, the left has kind of, like, become, like, these, like, suck-ups to Joe Biden and, like, authoritarian, um, like, not liberalism, but, like, liberalism as we know in the United States. And, like, I just want to note that I've, like, pushed back that, like, sort of liberal. And, like, a lot of people on the right are like, oh, you're a liberal. I'm like, I'm not a liberal. Don't call me a liberal, please. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to add. Interesting. Well, thank you, Mason. It's it's interesting to hear like a like a self-identified progressive say that. And I have noticed that like what you're saying that progressives don't want to be called liberal. And I actually appreciate the intellectual honesty of that because a lot of progressive positions are not liberal. I think some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. And so I actually think that intellectual clarity is useful. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that insight. Yeah. And I think in many respects, a lot of what people would call centrist Democrats or establishment Democrats or Biden Democrats or Hillary Democrats are neoconservative in a sense. They are, they're very much, yeah, they're very much adopting uh, some kind of conservative viewpoint and it, it spreads across, it spreads across a lot of what they talk about. It's not just in one area, but you see a lot of, um, even with the way they talk about speech these days, I feel like they've adopted the more conservative position, mm -hmm. which is that it used to be the case that 30 years ago, it was the people on the right. Like if you looked at a Senate hearing 30 years ago, it was the people on the right coming in and saying, can you believe the explicit language in this album mm -hmm. or whatever? Like they're coming to Congress and they're saying, these video games have to be stopped. We must stop them at all costs because they're you know hurting our kids and now it seems like it's it's more like the left are the ones coming in and they're angry about 
counterculture. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are pushing back on anything that is countercultural that pushes back against the whatever is the considered the mainstream narrative. Um, so th- in many ways, they've they've shifted positions and they've become more what I'd call conservative or neoconservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially like on foreign policy recently. I don't know. If, yeah. Like, like with the situation in Ukraine and even when it comes to like other issues, I think that that's something we've seen, at least from like Biden Democrats, like you were saying. And yeah, like, def- definitely true on foreign policy is a good example. And uh, the last thing I want to add is like I said about like, that's my one of my big issues with the left right now is they're like, they're these people who are like big coal, this big agriculture, this. But then when it comes to the big pharmaceutical industry, and that's why I, I find myself talking to a lot of like right wing libertarians about this um, is when it comes to like the issue of like the vaccine mandates and stuff. And like the left, who is like this, these people who are like, we need to stomp out authoritarianism. They've shifted to like support this full on. And I just think that's like a really bizarre shift that has happened. And I think that's what Biden has done is kind of like taken over the Democratic Party and so many people who are not a fan of him and not a fan of his ideas to begin with have just kind of fallen in line. Yeah. And I again, I think it's very much a conservative shift across the board. And the the trouble is people on the right so want to believe that Biden has turned the country into some kind of progressive dystopia or something that they won't acknowledge that actually – what he's done has been fairly conservative and not that different in many respects with to, uh, to what Donald Trump would have done or to what Barack Obama would have done. Like the, the policies have not changed that much in many respects and they don't want to believe that. Corey. I just wanted to say something about the, the use of conservative here, because I, I actually tweeted about this the other week where I was talking about how like urban Democrats are actually dispositionally like the most conservative people I know at this point, um, whether it's about COVID or whether it's about general safetyism, like the mainstream Democrats have become extremely conservative um, in, in like not even in a political sense, but in like a dispositional sense. They're, they're very conservative. And I find that just super interesting. And it's interesting to hear Mason's perspective about the left, because I think that, too. Uh, but I'm, I don't consider myself on the left. Um, so it's interesting to hear that from someone who identifies as progressive, because that shift, I think, is very real. And, um, yeah, especially like the vaccine mandates is a great example. Just just the way um, a lot of folks on the left have decided that, you know, absolute state power is apparently fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thanks, Mason. Well, Corey, we've said it all. Well, not not everything, no, but I, I'm sure uh, we'll have another opportunity in the future to talk more, certainly privately, but also hopefully again on a podcast or something. So um, I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, I do wish you the best in everything you're doing. You are someone who I've known just about longer than anyone else in the Liberty Movement, and. Yeah. And as I said, you're still young. So 35. It. 35. I don't really know what young means anymore. <laughs> I think I think young goes to like 50 now. Oh, now. Yeah. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As you get older, young shifts. So so uh, we've got a lot. Of, we've got a lot of time, hopefully, um, in this world. So I uh, I do wish you the best and wishing you the best to your family and um, I'm sure I'll catch you again soon. Yes, thanks for having me on. It was great. Thanks, Corey. Take care.